go. Oh, that's right. Hey, live from the Mecca of Mormonism, this is Heart of the Matter, where we are learning together how to navigate Christian living through the age of fulfillment. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we uh, thank you for life, and uh, we realize it's kind of tenuous right now with everything going on around us, and we just pray that you will uh, be with our viewers and, and everybody, actually. Bless the world, bless the nation, bless the state. Uh, help Seth and Wendy there in the cage as they try to get the show out right and the, and the, the volume and everything else. Help Kathy, Maggie, and Mary are answering phones. If we have any calls tonight, and we just pray that your spirit will be with us as we talk about some important things relative to this day and age. In Jesus' name, amen. So while I'm really not big on domanic, uh, domanic, demonic control in the world today, does anybody know a good exorcist? <laughs> We, we, what the hell is going on? I mean, uh, we're going to get to it in a minute. We're going to talk about all of it, but wow. Uh, in the name of what's best for health, uh, we have uh, postponed our Sunday's best due to the virus. I want to thank our devoted friends, Father Christopher Gray, Catholic Church, Lee Baker, who was willing to drive out here all the way from California, even in the virus to share the message, Bob Bergeron, LDS guy, and Denver Snuffer, all for their willingness to participate and look forward to the day that we can do this Sunday's best, because I think it will really be beneficial once all this virus stuff has passed. So again, Sunday's best postponed. Also, a heads up on the progress of the TVAR, the Transversional Apostolic Record. What is that? It's a, a version of the New Testament. Uh, I've completed um, the first run, or I will have completed the first run through the Synoptic Gospels in the next probably four weeks. It's dicey. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and probably by May, we'll have that available to you for a nominal cost. And the reason that we have to charge for it is because the copyright office wants to see us selling copies of it to give us our trademark, uh, which will be on the cover of the version. And in order to uh, establish the trademark marketability and viability, we have to sell copies. So it'll probably be for a couple bucks and you can uh, download the version. I got to talk with Seth and Wendy and Michael about this and how to do it. But anyway, just to let you know, it's a huge task, but we're making progress. We have a really important show tonight. Um, and uh, before we get to your comments, and I really hope that you'll consider what I have to say um, and then forward it to 4,000 of your friends as a means to get the message out. So you ready? I want to talk with you about God and his impressiveness, how impressive God is. I recently told my daughter Delaney that I see the world like a person who has gotten a Bible and cut two holes out of it, and I put that Bible up to my face, and I look through the Bible at the world around me. That is how I see and observe Everything that's happening, I always uh, have done that for the past probably 20 years, is I have what's called a biblical worldview. Now, you know I think things differently about our age, and so it's not exactly like evangelicals see it, but I do use the principles of the book to observe and understand the world around me. Because of this, most of my views 
and my opinions are colored black, white, or red. And because of this, my views, uh, my view of information that's presented to me um, is somewhat jaded, if you will, uh, somewhat tweaked by this view. And I admit it, I have sought it out, I have chosen it, and this worldview allows me to, I think, see situations around us in a different way than for me to just try to discern what's happening around us through my own intelligence. I take my intelligence and I try to set it down, that little amount of it, and then I put the Bible up to my face and I look through that lens to understand what's going on. And because of this fact, I want to share some things that are happening around us today through that lens uh, that I have uh, adopted probably 30 years ago when I really started becoming a student of the Scripture. Some of you, you think this is magical thinking, or you might think that I connect the dots where they no connection exists, and that's okay. I understand that. In the end, uh, nevertheless, it is how I see the world that's through that lens. And in the end, I am often impressed beyond belief at the wisdom, at even the... Um, ways, even the humor of God. God impresses me more and more the older I get with what's going on around us. To give you an example of this, the Bible is clear uh, on the message that all of us are born into a fallen world and we are all um, steeped in sin by our very nature of our flesh and that our natural births create natural men and natural women, who scripture says is an enemy to God, and that this is why Jesus taught that everybody must be born again. So when I consider life on this earth and what I just said, through that lens of looking through the Bible, that's how I see human beings until Jesus has come in and given them new life. And I place, as a result, I place very little emphasis on some things that otherwise natural human beings really love. And people know this about me who know me. For instance, birthdays. I, I, I don't have any respect for human birthdays unless they're the birthdays of children because I think children don't know any better and they love their birthday and so you celebrate it. But I find birthdays to be celebrating something that an individual had nothing to do with. It's not meritorious in the least. We were born not by any action of ourselves, and yet we celebrate it as, as if we've accomplished something, right? And, uh, and so, uh, it, it, unless you have the spiritual birth from above, your natural birthday will not get you into the kingdom of God. And it actually stands in the way, your natural birth stands in the way of you entering the kingdom of God. So birthdays are something really to be overcome in your life, not to be rejoiced over. So of late, I've been faced with a, uh, we have all been faced, not I, with a pandemic of disease around the world, and it seems to be growing, and that's led to the infection and death of thousands of people thus far. We're all on quarantine, and it apparently is going to continue for some time now. It makes me laugh that as a means to get people to wash their hands long enough 
to rid themselves of this horrible virus that has been, it's been recommended that people sing the happy birthday song. As they're scrubbing this virus away from their hands, that if it gets into them, it could kill them. And for those with the biblical worldview as mine, this suggestion of singing happy birthday while you scrub your hands of a virus that can kill you is totally apropos. Think about it for a minute. You're washing and scrubbing to try to get something that can kill you off your natural body that's part of this fallen world and you're singing happy birthday to me, happy birthday to me, happy birthday to me. This virus is deadly. It's a product of the fall. And so in our birthday, we celebrate. It's like, it's like a totally tongue in cheek action. And I don't even know if people realize it. It's just hilarious that that's what they're telling people to do to sing that song. Very impressive. Very impressive the way I see the way these things work out on earth. And I'm not saying God created that stuff. Uh, I'm saying that there's just great irony present in the things that surround us as human beings on earth relative to God's perspective. You know, actually, I'm not of the opinion that God creates things of, he doesn't create things of destruction. I don't believe that to punish the human race. That is what most religious people think. But I do think he uses what's on hand. I think he uses what's on hand to bring forth some super impressive messages. Really impressive messages for us. For instance, I don't think that God created the toilet. I don't think that it, he was... I don't think that he was behind the toilet being uh, created, but I do think there is super great irony that we had a guy that we called the king. We called Elvis the king. Now, I love Elvis's music, but we called him a king, and he died on a throne. I find great impressiveness in these things that exist out there. Perhaps I'm connecting dots where there are none, but through the biblical worldview, it, when you take the stories of men who elevate themselves, like Herod and how he died, and different stories, and you look at it, the things make sense to me. That's how I see them. In other words, I don't think for a minute that God created a big old surplus of rain he had buckets, giant buckets of water in heaven in order to put the deluge on during Noah's time. I think he just opened up the avenues of existing water. He didn't specially create it. And he let the water do its thing when it was the right time. Similarly, I don't think God sent fire down from heaven that they called fire and brimstone. I think that he, he simply had it ignite or had someone ignite what's called the bitumen that surrounded the whole area that's now called the Dead Sea where Sodom and Gomorrah and two other cities were. And when that ignited that bitumen, which is highly flammable and burns with intense heat, it torched everybody there. I don't think that God has special weapons of destruction to wipe the people out. 
I just think he releases them as a means to teach us something. In addition to this view, it's also really impressive that God not only uses existing things in teaching us humans lessons, but he uses really small things to start off his impressive uh, lessons for us. So he uses existing things and he uses really small things to send the message. Looking back to Moses' day, do you remember what happened? Aaron had a staff in his hand. God didn't create it. It was existing. And God says in Exodus 4.2, what is that in your hand? And Aaron said, a staff. Just like that. What's in your hand? He said, a staff. And with that staff, that self-existing staff, God used it to create some fantastic wonders there among the Egyptians to let his people go. Remember Samson in Judges 15, 15. What did Samson kill a thousand men with? That's what it says, but it might not be literal. It could be a representative number. But what did he kill a thousand men with according to Judges 15:15? Uh, the jawbone of a donkey. I never understood that when I was a kid. He picked up a jawbone, and he slew what it says is a thousand men. That is impressive. It's also humorous. It's humorous that one guy in God's power was able to kill a quote unquote a thousand with the jawbone of an ass. God is funny. He does funny things. Remember the killing of Goliath? David shows up in 1 Samuel 17 and all the men of military, oh, they put on this big heavy armor and they give him this shield and they give him the sword. And David's like, I can't fight with this stuff on me. This stuff is encumbering me. So what does it say? He chose for himself five smooth stones from a brook and he put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch and with his sling, which was in his hand, he approached the Philistine, end quote. And interestingly, David only used one rock of the five from his self-existing pouch, from the sling that he made, and he dropped the giant. <laughs> Boom. Bye-bye, fathead. That's funny. If you were in a, in a war and you saw a kid with a sling drop the most fearsome giant that everybody's afraid of, that says something humorous. It's a small thing that God shows his impressiveness. How about the widow and her only son in uh, 1 Kings 17? Elijah, he comes to her and he says, I'm hungry. And she says, I only have a handful of flour and a handful of oil. That's all I've got. And Elijah says, make me cakes and feed me first and then feed yourself. And she does it. She does it in faith. She gives and provides. And what happens? They live off that until the famine that was caused by a drought ends. And then when you look at the famine itself, what was the first sign of the famine ending when the drought ended? It says in there in the scripture that there was a cloud the size of a man's fist over the sea, a cloud the size of a man's fist. And from that little cloud pre-existing, came the rains that stopped this drought that was killing everybody around them. 
It's from the pre-existing small things that God operates. Remember how Daniel talked about a stone, which in the Hebrew is not big, would be cut out from the mountain without hands and would roll forth and fill the earth. You know, that's a picture of the rock, Jesus, uh, born in an animal manger, born of suspect uh, heritage, born a Galilean, despised, having no beauty that men would desire of him. That little rock cut out of a mountain without hands would roll forth and fill the earth. That is a a picture of the same thing with Jesus. God didn't have him uh, come out as a warrior. He didn't make him a superman. He couldn't even carry his own cross physically. He was beaten so badly he didn't have the strength. He was like a reed out of dried ground, a small, insignificant human being who changed the world. That's impressive. When you think of John the Baptist, all the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, they're all in lofty robes and they're all rich and wealthy and they're dining off grapes and stuff. I don't know if they did that. And and out comes John the Baptist from the desert. He had never touched a dead thing. He had never drank alcohol. All he ate were grasshoppers and honey. He never cut his hair. He never cut his beard. He wore old, he wore uh, just a, a camel's hair coat, scratchy and itchy, and a leather girdle around his body. And he came out and he ripped those Pharisees and Sadducees to bits with his language. Who has told you to come forth? He was unbelievable. This nobody of a man, small, existing thing that God used to come forward, right? Jesus, how did he feed the seven and 4,000? Couple loaves of bread, couple fish, and he fed thousands from the small God works. And of course, we know what Paul said, right? In 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the basic things of the world and the despised God has chosen and the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man will boast before God. No man We don't boast in our strength. We don't boast in our armies. We don't boast in our big houses. We don't boast in our bank accounts. We don't boast in the great things that man loves. We look to God and we rejoice at the impressiveness of the small things that he uses to confound the wise. In my estimation, limited as it is, God seems to thoroughly enjoy using small, subtle, insignificant things that are already in existence as a means to show his existence and his power and his wisdom among men and women on earth. Right now, we're talking about something that's so small, it's insignificant. We can't even see it to the naked eye. It's in the shape of a tennis ball with spikes and it started in a fishing village and it entered into one person. Somehow it got into that one person and it has stopped the fricking world. Stopped it. Stopped it. 
the world. I don't think God created that virus. I think it came about its own. But he knows how to let things go, how to let them work, and how to get people to stop doing this in a mirror and to start doing this. Because I can tell you a lot of people are doing that more and more, myself included. This is a radical God. This is a God that I love. I love how this God works. He is just amazing. His ways, his wisdom, his desires to get all people to look to him and live. To look to him and live. And the unique means by which he does this blows my mind. We recently had an earthquake here in Salt Lake City. I don't think God caused it. I don't think God sent it. I think he simply let the tensions between the plates that are on the fault lines and the pressures there let loose a little bit. I think he's like, I'm going to pull back a little bit. Why not scare the hell out of everybody in Salt Lake City in addition to a pestilence to throw in an earthquake? And it was frightening, right? So he sends forth a small, simple gesture in the face of all that too. It was so small, so relatively insignificant that to the believing and the blind who cannot see, it might appear to be nothing more than a stone in the forehead of a giant or the jawbone of a donkey or the tiny mustard seed that would grow into the kingdom. It would be nothing to the people who want to be blind and stay blind. What was it? Amidst the shaking that went throughout the day in Salt Lake City, the Salt Lake City LDS Temple's golden Moroni angel, which faces east, blowing that trumpet that you see right there, was shaken out in its of its 150 or 175 year, 200 year history was shaken out of the, from the mouth, the puffed up mouth and the hand of the angel. It was shaken out and it dropped to the floor, to the ground below, 100 feet below, leaving that golden idol with nothing in his hand and nothing to blow into. And while that's a really small thing compared to the LDS Church's $1.3 billion shopping mall and their, 10, or, and their $100 billion savings account for the second coming and all of their real estate holdings around the globe, it was something that was right in line with how God works, right in harmony with the jawbone the stone, the mustard seed, the few fishes, the Lord Jesus Christ. He just plucked that trumpet right out of that angel's hands. And it was so symbolic. It would have been one thing if he knocked the whole temple over. We would have rejoiced in that magnificent thing. Or if he knocked the whole uh, angel Moroni over. Oh, <laughs> humans love that. But God says, let me send something more impressive. I'm going to slip that trumpet right out of that inanimate golden idol's hands and I'm going to get rid of it. And the, and the golden idol is going to be looking like this. 
blowing into nothing, holding nothing in his hand. From the LDS website, the official website, we read, in the scriptures, trumpets are used to sound warnings, proclaim news, and herald visitors. Moroni holds a horn to his lips with his right hand, symbolizing both the spreading of the gospel throughout the world and the long-anticipated second coming of the Savior, which will be announced by trumpet-blowing angels. And the article cites Matthew 24 to give it biblical support. In the face of this anachronistic, religious, bloated rhetoric that you find that keeps good people glued to their false authority and their false doctrines and their false history, their missionaries around the world have been sent home. Their billion-dollar mall is closed and their $100 billion savings account to herald in the second coming of Jesus will not cause Jesus to appear. It doesn't work that way. The power and might of men is nothing to God. He scoffs at it. It was a simple gesture that gently whispered to anyone with ears to hear, all that you promote, Mormons, all that you maintain, all that you preach to the world is over. Your heralding trumpet to bring me back is not going to work. You're blowing your trumpet to send your gospel message out to the world is false. It's empty. There's no sound. Be patient and just keep watching. It's really interesting times. Speaking of watching, the next segment is the most important segment of our show tonight. And I challenge you social media-minded people to get out and push for this. I am really challenging you to do this. Now is the time it really is. And I want to start off by touting the website checkmychurch.org. Checkmychurch.org. The site is phenomenal. And it's full of really good insights and research and recommendations that I look forward to. Uh, I look forward to that them, Sarah and Joe, to getting that site nationwide, worldwide. I really look forward to that because I think it's going to do some good in the end. For years, we have been singing the tune that brick and mortar religion is over based on the contextual reading of the Bible, not just our own views based on the contextual reading of the Bible. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that brick-and-mortar religion was never supposed to be once the former age in Jerusalem that represented the former age was closed. To me, it seems that God is making this point abundantly clear today as brick-and-mortar churches around the nation, if not the world, have closed. They've closed all around the world, all around the United States, million dollar religious organizations and operations stratified with unnecessary bloated uh, budgets and staff and mission trips and concerts. Uh, 
all of it. Shut down. It's sitting there like an amusement park infested with rats and lice. They are closed. That's impressive, isn't it? That is impressive. Now ask yourselves, what has been lost as a result? Seriously, when it comes to those closed buildings, what's been lost? I miss the movie theaters. I miss the the going to the stores. I miss the restaurants. I miss the parks, the beaches. But what has been lost in your relationship with God because those churches have closed? Have you become a, a, a heretic? Have you lost your way? Have you stopped believing in God because the churches have closed? Now, if you're someone who says, well, I really feel myself weakening because they've closed, I would suggest you've got a problem with how you relate to God. That you go there for a religious fix of something that isn't needed. But if you're a true Christian, you know that over the past week and a half and coming up on two and hopefully three and five and maybe months and months at a time, the absence of church meant nothing. They haven't contributed to anything. The only thing they've done is taken from you. They've taken your time. They've taken your allegiance. They've taken your devotion to family by making you participate in volunteerism for them. And they've taken your money. And now they sit closed. It's so damn impressive. I can't even believe it. What has been lost? that individuals take with them to heaven. Not a thing. People will say, well, you know, we need to get together to have prayer and fellowship and singing. You can do that in your home with your family. Nothing's been lost. Uh, you can watch sermons and you can watch preaching of the gospel on online. You don't have to go to a brick and mortar for that. Nothing's been lost. Now ask yourselves, what are the big empires of religion doing? They're sitting around the whole world in silence. They're empty. They're hollow. Nothing can go on inside of them. And hopefully they're not being funded. Hopefully not. It's like God saying to every living human being, be still and know that I am God. You don't have to go to a brick and mortar to learn that. Open your Bible, get on your knees, be with your family, turn from that idol worshiping at your church. Turn from that music show that, that people use as, uh, with fog machines. Turn from that tithe. Turn from those obediences and that legalism they, they demand of you. Their doors have been shut. God has allowed the church's doors to be shut. Not so that you're going to be jonesing for him, so that you can wake up and have a relationship directly with him. In the face of all of this, here's the part I want to promote and get behind and get you to get behind it. All around the world, people are out of work. Here in Utah, there's not a single restaurant open. Not, no malls are open, no movie theaters Airlines are losing $22 billion a day. 
The economic fallout from this is going to be insane. People have been laid off, cut back, but guess what keeps piling up? Their bills. And if the government sends every family $3,000, BFD. That will do nothing. It'll cover a month, right? So most Americans have very little money stashed away for savings, and they are headed into some extremely difficult times economically. How will we survive? I have a suggestion. I think it is a fantastic suggestion in light of everything we're looking at. Liquidate the churches and give the proceeds to the poor. Everybody, all the pastors get together and liquidate their material possessions. This is not communism. This is pastors stepping up and doing the Christian thing to help their congregates and neighbors get through this tough time. Why should a billion or trillion or a million dollar edifice with all of its trappings and all of its equipment sit there empty and untapped when it can be liquidated and the proceeds can be given to people who are struggling to make ends meet. That's a Christian act that the pastors could do, right? Also, think about this. Who built these churches, these mega churches? Who paid for the real estate and the brick and mortar that are sitting all over the world in silence? The local believing congregates built them through their tithes and donations. So doesn't it make sense, doesn't it make Christian sense that the best thing these material empires can do, the most Christian thing these pastors can do is liquidate all their material assets assets, and distribute them to those in their congregation and others in the community who are struggling to make ends meet. Doesn't it make the best Christian sense that these empires set up to... Uh, to uh, uh, that these empires step up to the plate. They empty their bank accounts and they share it with the people in the community. Wouldn't that be remarkable? Pastors, you know who you are. Some of you are watching tonight. Why don't you do it? You're not using your building and you're probably not going to use it for the next two, three, five months, maybe six months, maybe 18 months if this thing gets bad. Let's really do some good. I think it's the greatest thing that can happen. I tell you what, even though here at campus, we have never taught tithes or collected tithes, uh, even though we don't take collections ever, uh, we, and we rent the space that we're in and uh, that we meet in week in and week out, and uh, even though our, we have nothing in the bank, we never have, all of our supplies will liquidate everything. All of our supplies will liquidate all of our chairs, the only thing we'll keep is our camera and our stuff to distribute the show out to the world like we do. But we'll get rid of the refrigerator, the, the, the microwave, all the art if we can get rid of it, and we'll put it up for sale. And from it, we might get $2,000 <laughs> if we're lucky. And, and we'll distribute those needs to the poor, which are probably going to be me, Seth, Wendy, and Mary, and, and Kathy, Maggie, because <laughs> we're the poor. We'll empty our bank accounts. But you know, it's one thing for small churches that don't preach tithes and take up collections to do that. I'm just doing this to get you to think. I don't think there'd be any purpose for uh, selling this off and getting a couple grand. That, that won't do anything. But I think it would do a lot 
for those churches that have preached tithes and begged for donations and have built up great assets in prime real estate property to do this. I think I, people are thinking you're nuts. Why would I be nuts? If not do it, why not just use those places as hospitals? Why not make them like the, 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 the cities of refuge that used to be in the Old Testament? And anybody who has the virus goes there and lays on a bed to get over it. Why not use them? If our hospitals are going to be overflowing, why not the churches? That could be at least something that we could do with them, right? I think if the church preached tithes, the church owes it to the, those who paid them. And I think if the church preached that you better participate, the church needs to participate now in return. Are you game pastors? Let's do it together. Like I said, I'll, we'll go first here at campus if you'll join in. I promise you, we'll go first at campus. You join in, you pastors in this community and outside of it. What about it? Calvary Chapel, Terry Long. Start liquidating your thrift store and all your big thing over there. And get rid of all that stuff and give it to those people in your congregation who have lost their jobs. Paul Roby, South Mountain Church. Come on, brother. Sell your multi-campus monstrosity and all of those assets and give it to people who need the money. Empty your bank accounts, which are bloated. Listen, what do you think the pastors are doing when people are losing their jobs? in their congregation. Are they struggling? I guarantee you they have enough money to live off. You see, they're living off your ties that they've stored up for themselves while you have to go on welfare or not pay your bills or lose your house or something. It shouldn't be, but I guarantee you they've uh, protected themselves if a good audit was done. Bottom line, if you have been a pastor that has preached ties to your people, you owe it to your congregates to help every single person who needs to make uh, ends meet. And the only way you're going to do it, unless you're independently wealthy, is to liquidate and uh, empty the accounts and help people that way. So the challenge that I have as we wrap this part of it up is, um, is share this message. Let's start the, the revolution online. Let's scare the schnit out of these bloated pastors. And then I challenge all of you who are struggling to make ends meet that go to a local church that have contributed and paid to the local church for you to write an email or make a call to your pastor and say, I need financial help. And I'm not talking about a 20. I need $4,500 to make my bills for the next couple months. Go to him and ask him right now, help me out and see what answer you get. They've taken, they've taken, they've taken. They've commanded you to pay. Let's get them to give back. And the way to test it is by you calling them and saying, I lost my job. I've been laid off. I'm a waitress at a restaurant and I haven't been able to work tables for 13 days now. How are they going to make it? All you pastors out there, especially those in the million dollar edifices, the huge budgets, the state of the art equipment, to you pastors whose assets are sitting in bank accounts silently paying only you, I give you the same advice that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and follow him. Woo! It's going to make some fun friends, isn't it? Okay.
So last week's live show, Patrick wrote, Sean is right on. We don't ever need to step foot in a brick and mortar church. I like to go to fellowship, but it has nothing to do with my relationship with God through Christ. And I get that. And, you know, fellowship is why the churches really exist. That's why they really thrive today in America. It's for the fellowship, which people are missing right now as they're sequestered in their homes during the quarantine. But, you know, there's a lot of ways to have fellowship in this world and not have it go through a million dollar building that is preaching you to support it. So great. Uh, Davy Jones says, thanks for your Coronacho skepticism. Still, if prayer works, why is uh, COVID-19 still with us? That is a great question. If prayer works, I don't know that prayer works that way. I'm not sure that prayer works that way. Uh, and, and I said this on a show that we're going to play later on, but uh, I, I had a guy ask me, are you going to follow the governor's advice to pray that the virus stops? And my answer to him was, why would I pray that a virus stops that God allowed to start? It doesn't make sense. I pray. He said, well, you don't believe in prayer. I said, well, I believe that prayer helps us understand and accept God's will. I pray that I'll be able to accept his will if he takes someone in my family from this virus. I pray that I'll be able to accept his will if we go down the drain financially. I pray I'll be able to have my faith in him. But I don't pray to have my will on earth be done uh, from what he's doing. I don't agree with that. And I don't appreciate our governor making us do that. Karen Cross wrote, she cited Matthew 12, 28. If I cast, Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what Jesus said in his day. Was he casting out demons by the spirit of God? Of course he was. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you, Jesus said. People just don't believe the Bible when they look for a second coming, is what Karen adds. What a huge relief to have washed out Mormonism or this pandemic would be very frightening. Amen to that, my sister, and a great point. Bobby Johnson said, awesome prayer. People need to stop freaking out. And Three Pigs said, obey, don't question. The debate is over. Jesus never said to obey his leaders and not question. But that's what many two churches and the Corona thought po-po command do. I cannot always follow what Piggy says. The Corona thought po-po command do. Being micromanaged is good news, hell no. Gotta love manipulation through hysteria. Does that all sound too familiar? Embedded in our cult, sure. If religions don't give it to you, politics and science will. Well, he always adds, uh, adds a new literary flame to our show. Got this interesting email from Clint. Listen to what he says. Hey, Sean, first let me say I'm a sold out born again Christian who believes in Bible stories like miracles to be literal. Jesus making the fig tree wither, Jesus and Peter walking on water. But when I look at a rock and tell it to move, nothing happens. So my question is, do I have the spirit with me? Do I not have the faith of a mustard seed? Again, I know it's silly, but Jesus said that if we believe anything is possible. Thanks for everything, Sean, and God bless. Keep up the great work. And that's from Clint. James clarifies that. And he says, if we ask God things, the righteous desires will be answered by God. That's what God says there. So it's not just if we ask God to give us a billion dollars, he's going to do it. And we really believe it. 
It's not that. It's if it's within his will and it's righteous. But it's a great question, brother, about faith in the mustard seed. Let me tell you why. A mustard seed is a super, super, super small seed. It's not the smallest on earth, but it was the smallest in that vicinity when Jesus taught. But faith, the size of a mustard seed, is an enormous amount of faith. You understand? The mustard seed might be small, but faith, the size of a mustard seed, is a huge amount of faith. It's like the amount of faith of the Wasatch Mountains, which, which are behind us here in, in, in Salt Lake, right? And so while the mustard seed's small, the faith the size of a mustard seed is huge. For anybody to possess that much faith the size of a mustard seed is is unheard of in, in the human world, except for Jesus and then maybe a few others who did some mighty miracles uh, uh, in the Old Testament and, and then Peter walking on water. The faith the size of a mustard seed is so much that we know it doesn't exist in, in most human beings because people would be moving mountains. They would be moving rocks. They could say to that tree, go be planted in the sea, and it would happen. The point is, we don't have genuine faith the size of a mustard seed. If we were going to look at the faith that we have, it's probably more like faith the size of the tip of an eyelash on an ant. It is so, so small, but yet it's enough to save us by looking through God's grace on his son in faith. That justifies us before the father. Are you spirit-filled? You can be spirit-filled and not be faith-filled. Faith is a really, really rare commodity. And to get a lot of it requires uh, a gift from God, being in the Word, trusting in Him, growing in your faith. And that comes by having trials and difficulties and we grow. And that's scriptural too. So... um Want to let you know that we, along with uh, streaming on YouTube, we've started streaming live on Periscope and on Facebook. So those are some other ways that we are streaming live out to you. We hope you're taking advantage of that. From last night's show, we received the following. You would be good on the street, meaning a street preacher. The truth is on the street. And then we also got an email from Lindsay in uh, Hawaii. But Lindsay's on the phone, and we're going to take... His call right now. Lindsay! Hello! Hey, brother! Oh, Captain, my captain! How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for answering my call. You're welcome, brother. Tell us about yourself. Oh, I uh, used to be Kiki Line, Lindsay. I used to play music uh, all over the country. And uh, long story short, I got in a wreck going on two years ago. And uh, I obviously I have a speech impediment from it. Uh, but I'm so grateful to talk to you. You're so wonderful. I'd like, to point, I'd like to point you away tonight on your show with about the pastors telling all they have. I like it part. All right. I like it too. Hey, you're a, yeah. mu you're a musician. I'm a musician, yes. And you and your sons traveled around and you were in Wyoming when you got in the accident. That's right. 
Two and a half years. How close to how what percentage are you uh, recovered? Oh, that's a good question. I can play guitar, but I can't play well quite yet. Luckily, my hands work and I can form the chords. My throwing me hand is kind of gimpy. I can sing better than I talk. <laughs> well, that's kind of cool. I can, I can walk fine. I give things. Um, I, uh, I live with life without pain. Uh, as long as I keep moving. But God's been so good to me, and so much so that He lives for you. I'm so grateful for your teachings, brother. Oh, I love your your wit. I love the email that you sent me. Do I pronounce your name Kiki or Kaiki? It's Kiki. Kiki. And Kiki, uh, Kiki means child in Hawaiian. It means a child. And I yeah. saw I, I watched your uh, video that you sent me, and you have the heart of a child, and you have the love of God, and I love the attitude that you have toward Him with your accident that you consider it a blessing and that you look to him and you realize he works through it in all things. Absolutely. God is so good to us, man. He loves us. He's my Abba. I love it, man. Uh, tell it. What's, what's the name of your band? We're called Melo Uhani. Melo Uhani. And that means spirit of music. That's right. Melo Uhani. You can search it on, on, online somewhere on YouTube. We'll look it up, my brother. Hey, listen, Lindsay. Thank you so much. Yes. Love you, brother. Love you more. <laughs> we'll get together someday. Absolutely. I'll count on it. Did you grow up in the islands? Oh, yeah. I grew up here in Kona. Right on the Kona side, huh? Yeah, you should come over. I've been over there before. You're tempting me. Uh, tell me something. Do you body surf? I body surf for sure, yes. Oh, we'll have to do it. Oh, we're doing it, bro. All right, man. I love you, brother. Thank you for your encouraging words. All right. Aloha. Aloha. Bye-bye. And let's go to Mike in Ohio. Mike, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, brother. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you doing? Oh, I am doing great, to be honest with you. How's it, um, going, how's it going there in Ohio? Uh, it's uh, gloriously chaotic. <laughs> are you guys on lockdown? Oh, not, yeah, not really. Just, you know, the restaurants closed, the churches closed. Hooray, burn down the house. Um, <laughs> that kind of stuff, though. <laughs> Maybe we'll get some better restaurants out of it, huh? Maybe the. <laughs> and, you know, the other thing, too, is as far as the churches go, you know, you can always do what the, the communists did and turn it into community centers, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know. It, it may happen just by virtue of the economics. Yeah, you just tear down those uh, obelisks or, or spires or whatever they're called on top of them and turn them into community centers. Just think about it. I mean, they, they've got a built-in uh, theater. Uh, the kids could see movies. you got all those rooms. You could actually could teach the children the truth about stuff. Maybe you could find some people who actually know the Bible. And they can actually teach the truth of what's actually in the Bible. Oh, that would be amazing. That would. That it? would be amazing. But, you Mike. know, I want. I want to ask you a question that's, that's off the topic. Yeah. It's about you. How are your hips doing, man? You just Ooh. had like a major surgery. <laughs> how, how do you know that? Did I tell people that? Yeah, you said oh. you had double hips. Yeah, both, both of them. Hips? Yeah, I. They were starting to go bad. My wife, she had her hip. She had one hip done. It was really bad. 
Mine were starting to go bad and I was having a lot of pain at night. So I got them both done last year. And you know, I'm getting older, so moving around, not like a young spring chicken, but uh, God has blessed me and I'm able to do it. So I'm grateful for any help. Yeah, I understand. And as far as, you know, I got MS. And I'm oh, you in my do? 50s. Oh, by the way, I'm a musician too. And I have a speech impediment. So what would be the odds? That the second caller would have the same things going on. <laughs> it's it's the musician speech impediment show. I know it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not a musician, but I've got an impediment with my speech. That's for sure. <laughs> By the way, your daughter is an amazing songwriter. I'm very impressed. Oh man, thanks so much. That's what keeps. Well, you know, as, as far as the music goes, I want to say, you know, part of it the inspiration is from guys like you. I'm going to try to share more about what the Bible says, and then what's going on, and God, and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, awesome. much more eclectic approach, but um, it's not, uh, I'm not into the Christian music thing or that kind of stuff. So. You're not? But, uh, uh, yeah, it's, I'm glad to see you. I, I'm not uh, into it either. Ann Arbor. One more thing, and then, because uh, I just live down the road from Ann Arbor. Did you enjoy your time in Ann Arbor, and what restaurant did you go to? You know what? Uh, I, we have a, uh, there's a few restaurants my daughter uh, knows. I don't know them well, but there is a, uh, there's an old Taco Bell that's been converted into a, uh, oh, what was the kind of food? It's like Middle Eastern food. It's excellent. Really good. Okay. It's run by a small family. And then we went to a place called the Carlisle Grill. That was excellent in Ann Arbor. Yeah, that's one thing about Ann Arbor. There's some decent restaurants. There really are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, uh, in a I, you know, so uh, there's a lot of things I'd like to talk to you about, but, you know, it's like the thing is, uh, as far as what's going on, I mean, I think there's, obviously there's going to be a lot of hurt, and I think, you know, a lot of people are going to wake up from this, and the reality, you know, if you look at all the money's going, and going to the Federal Reserve, trillions and trillions of dollars, there's a major reset. Yeah, the major and reset. I, but which is interesting, I mean, I don't know if, synagogues and uh, the Catholic Church is closed, but everybody else is closed. I just wonder how it's all going to turn out. And then, um, yeah, I hope it does wake people up and make them realize that they can't find God there. Me too, brother. I think it's a great reset. I think it's a great time to reset, like you said. Mike, it's great to talk to you. God bless you, my brother. Yeah, you take care. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. You know, it's funny because he was talking about speech impediment and uh, Mike from MS and Kiki because of a, a auto accident. And then both are musicians and both complimented my daughter's music. Listen to what uh, Kike wrote in, a, in, a, in an email. I learned you commission and in fact challenge your daughter to write music for verses in the Bible. And I find Mallory's music masterful. He says, just saying. Now, listen, because she's my daughter, I'm not just tooting this. The, 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 the songs are not jamming songs that you find at a Christian church rock concert with a fog machine. They are songs that are purposely created to help you learn the word of God. And they are literally uh, the verses of from the word of God set to music. That's not easy to do to make them flow because there's, you know, a lot of words and they don't rhyme and stuff like that. But I guarantee you people who want to learn the word of God, whether you like, like it or not, I love it. It's, it's my favorite music to tell you the truth. You can get it. How do you get it on iTunes? 
in the description below. Oh, there's a little arrow. Push it. It gives you the description below and you can access Mallory's music. Mallory Lundqvist's music. It is beautiful. It will bring the word of God into your life in ways that you won't believe. And we use it every Sunday at campus. And of course, you know, people want, uh, you know, to feel more. Church is more about feeling, weeping, causing us to cry. And th- those, those lyrics, if the Bible verse isn't set on causing you to cry, they really more get into your heart and cause you to think. Like, am I, am I, I'm singing this? Do I believe this? Is this about me? So check out Mallory's music because we've had two musicians call in who both give it the thumbs up. Her dad gives it the thumbs up. And so I suggest it. So listen, uh, we're out of time. Consider what we talked about on this show. Really think about it. Don't just, oh, Sean, he's, he's crazy or that's such a dumb idea. Think about it. What has that closed church meant to you and your relationship to God and your family? What has it really meant? And then I challenge you to write your pastor or call your pastor if you've lost your job and say, I'm out of a job. You have collected tithes from us for years. We need help now and see what they have to say. We'll talk about it. Email us, write your comments below, and we'll talk about it next week here on Heart of the Matter.